If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Daniel Grohl. Daniel is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Carleton College in Minnesota. He specializes in ethics and bioethics with a focus on applied issues concerning families. His new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled Conceiving People, Genetic Knowledge and the Ethics of Sperm and Egg Donation. In the United States, tens of thousands of children are conceived every year with donated gametes. Now, if you're like me, you might not have considered the range of philosophical questions that arise from this fact. Still, a moment's reflection makes many of them obvious. When people decide to create a child with donated gametes, they typically have to make decisions about whether the identity of the donor will be available to the resulting person. And this quickly raises many other moral and even existential questions about the value of knowing the circumstances of one's own conception. One mark of a great philosophy book is that it uncovers new sites of philosophical reflection. And Daniel Grohl's new book does this brilliantly. It designs a cluster of philosophical questions that I suspect many listeners haven't considered and then develops intriguing answers to them. As usual, there's a lot to talk about, but let's begin as we usually do with our guest. Hi, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, uh, thanks for joining me. Uh, how are you today? I'm very well. It's very, very chilly in Minnesota today, but other than that, I'm good. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's chilly in Nashville today, but probably not as chilly as it is in Minnesota. Yeah, I think um, we mean different things by chilly, is my. <laughs> um, you know, we usually start with the author. Uh, so, uh, Daniel, why don't you uh, share something about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So, I'm currently in Northfield, Minnesota, but I was born uh, in Canada, in Kingston, Ontario, which is on the eastern edge uh, of Lake Ontario. Um, and I went to uh, McGill University in Montreal, uh, and actually my, my first degree was in music. I was in the music conservatory there uh, and did a degree, a uh, Bachelor of Music uh, in Jazz Performance. Um, but I also did a uh, Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy at the same time. Uh, that was the career I was going to fall back on. Uh, and uh, after that, I went and did graduate school um, at the University of Chicago uh, and was very, very fortunate to land a position um, at Carleton um, after graduate school in 2009. And I've been here ever since. 
you know, um, I have a friend who um, uh, also has a jazz philosophy background, and his joke is that he got into philosophy for the money. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I, <laughs> I, had, I knew I had my parents wrapped around my finger when they were like, well, you can do the music degree so long as you've also got the philosophy degree in your back pocket. <laughs> Um, well, that's fabulous. Um, you know, I think Plato, Socrates somewhere says philosophy is the best kind of music. Hmm. Yeah, I, that, that doesn't seem right. Music seems like the best kind of music. Uh, <laughs> philosophy is not so bad. <laughs> Great. Um, so um, let's, uh, let, let's talk about the book. How's that? That sounds great. Um, so this is, uh, you know, I, I, I really, um, really enjoyed uh, reading the book, uh, for the reasons I stated a, a moment ago. Um, you know, there are very clear, um, moral issues that I just hadn't, you know, that hadn't been legible to me. Let's just put it that way. Um, but, uh, in order to, um, make those issues, um, more salient, um, I think we need to set down as you do, uh, some sort of terminology. So some nomenclature. Um, uh, this is mostly a matter of sort of giving stipulative definitions of a somewhat philosophical, uh, technical sense, uh, to some common words. Um, can you, can you help lay down some of the, some of the nomenclature before we get into the argument of the book? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned, uh, uh that the book sort of asked this question that if you're going to conceive, um, a child with donated gametes and gametes here just means donated sperm or donated eggs or, uh, less commonly donated both, uh, a case of double donation. Um, should you uh, choose donors uh, whose identity um, will be known or become known to the child? Um, and there are different ways of sort of marking out the categories of donor that are important for investigating this question. So um, people have no doubt heard about anonymous donors. Um, these are uh, people who, when they, they donate, there's some kind of assurance made uh, that their identity will not be released uh, um, to um, the child who's conceived with those gametes. Now, the category of anonymous donor, you might think, is a thing of the past. I'm sure we've all read stories uh, um, in the Washington Post or the New York Times about people using 23andMe and discovering that they are um, uh, not genetically related to one or both of their parents. Uh, there's uh, the donor sibling registry. There's Facebook. There's just all kinds of ways these days to um, figure out who your genetic parent is, if it's not who you thought it was. And so it is true that um, if someone is an anonymous donor, they may well not remain anonymous. Um, and so one might think that there just isn't that category anymore, but I don't think that's, that's true. The way that I put it in the book is that if you're an anonymous donor, that's, as I put it, a normative category. It's a, it's a claim about... Um, what, at least from the point of view of the donor, should come to pass, which is that they should not be identified and they don't, at least at the time of donation, want to be identified. Um, and even if someone could figure it out, there's a world of difference between being uh, someone who happens to take a 23andMe test, gets the surprise, and then needs to do the sleuthing work of figuring out who someone is who didn't want to be contacted versus another kind of donor uh, what I call an open donor, sometimes known as an identity release donor, someone who, when they donate, says, yes, when the child turns a certain age, usually 18, uh, um, you can, uh, and they ask, uh, you can give my personal information to them. Uh, they can know who I am. And as a result, they will likely reach out to me. Um, uh, that person 
intends to be known or is willing to be known. And of course, that puts the resulting child in a very different situation than um, having to go do all the sleuthing themselves. So we've got an anonymous donor, someone who doesn't uh, intend to be known, doesn't want to be known. Uh, we've got what I call an open donor. And then the final category is uh, what I call a known donor. Um, and this would be the case where um, you donate, say, um, to a friend. Um, so, of course, the friend knows who you are. And typically in such cases, um, it's it, there's never a secret. So the resulting child know, grows up knowing that this person is the donor. Um, so we've got these sort of th these three levels, the intention never to be known, uh, anonymous donor, uh, the intention and willingness to become known uh, when the child turns, let's say, 18, and then effectively being known from the beginning. Um, and so the question is, is if you are uh, planning to conceive a child with donated gametes, which kind of donor should you go after? Um, uh, and so the book tries to answer, answer that question and argues that people should aim to use open donors. Um, and it proceeds by making a claim about the importance of what I call genetic knowledge. And now this is another term that needs to be um, explained because it's, it's, it's not obvious exactly what it means. So you could mean a number of things. Um, you, you might have in mind in the first instance, sort of knowledge of medical, the, the kind of knowledge that you get from medical science or biological science. What's my genetic profile? Am I a carrier for this? For, uh, do I carry this gene, which is an indicator for possibly some future condition or not? You could imagine sort of getting, if you were able to, to read it, if you had the scientific literacy, getting a printout of your genetic profile. And so you could imagine if someone says, what's the significance of genetic knowledge? They, they might mean that. But that's not what I mean. Um, uh, I mean knowing who your genetic progenitors are, knowing who your genetic parents are, uh, um, knowing their identity, um, and in a sense, being able to pick them out, being given the information that you can uh, look them up, uh, you know, in the olden days in the phone book, but more realistically online, <laughs> you've got a phone number, whatever, an email, and you can say that, that you know, I'm, I'm now pointing, that person is my genetic parent. Um, so uh, when I talk about the significance of genetic knowledge, uh, I'm, I'm talking about the significance of knowing who your genetic parents are um, and not just having sort of a, the printout of your genetic um, profile. Um, yeah. So to, just to be clear, um, genetic knowledge doesn't mean that you know um, or that you have a that you have a, a friendship or or a relationship, we might say, uh, with your progenitor. Is that right? Yeah, that, that's right. So that could be another sense of having genetic knowledge. Would be like like I, I, I know this person. They're they're my friend. I'm I'm well acquainted. And and um, I I don't mean that when I claim that they're that um, well when I'm interrogating this question. What is the significance of genetic knowledge? Now, of course knowing who your genetic progenitor is, knowing who your genetic parent is may well lead you to come to know them in this other sense of having a relationship. Um, but the thing that I focus on is knowing, knowing the identity, uh, being able to say it's this person, here's, here's a picture of them. Here's what they sound like, that kind of. Thing. Got it. So, um, before we, um, uh, get into the central thesis of the book, which again is that intended parents of donor conceived persons are genetically obligated to use, uh, I'm sorry, uh, are generally obligated to use an open donor. Right. Um, let's talk about what you call the secret. Cause that's, that's where the, the argument of the book begins, because I take it that it's important for the thesis 
that you defend the idea or defend the claim that um, uh, um, non-disclosure is, um, you know, is, is, is morally prohibited in some, in some way. So you defend the view that in general, uh, parents who conceive a child by means of donated gametes should not keep that fact uh, a secret uh, from, the, from the resulting child. Um, can you tell us why? Yeah, sure. Right. So one of the things that we'll get to is that a, a central argument of the book depends on this idea that um, donor-conceived people, as a general rule of thumb, have what I call a significant interest in having genetic knowledge, knowing who their genetic parents are. And you might have this thought that, like, well, if they don't know their donor-conceived, then they won't have that interest. Um, now, I'm inclined to think that, that in some sense, that's not true, that they probably do have the interest, but they think it's already being met. Um, they, they think that they know who their genetic parents are. Um, they're just wrong about that. But you could still have this thought like, look, we can just avoid these difficulties altogether um, if we just never mention it. We just keep it a secret. Uh, uh, um, no harm, no foul. None the wiser. Everyone is happy. Um, and I argue that that is, um, generally speaking, not the way to go uh, um, uh, morally. Um, and, and I should say that that is... Um, the consensus view these days is that one should be open about these things. Um, but let me explain why, why I think that's, that's true. Before I do, it's worth noting that, of course, there are some uh, families where keeping the secret, as I call it, is just not on the table. So gay and lesbian couples, um, it's not that they couldn't tell. It, plausibly, it, it, uh, they're going to they're gonna need to reveal, right? There's no keeping it a secret. But um, heterosexual couples do have this option, and the uh, social science suggests that many of them do exercise it. Uh, they, they either have no intention of telling, or they do intend to tell, but it's sort of never the right time, and then many years have passed, and then it becomes more and more awkward, and disclosure um, doesn't happen, at least not in the way that the people intended. Okay, so the claim is, is that for people for whom keeping the secret is in some sense an option, they shouldn't do it. Um, now, uh, here are, there are three kinds of reasons that are typically on offer, and I endorse two of them and then offer yet another reason. So one is, uh, is that in order to have a healthy sense of who you are, um, in order to, uh, um, have healthy identity development, um, it is absolutely crucial, necessary that you know who your genetic parents are. Um, according to this view, knowing your genetic parents are is what I call a profound prudential good. It's just profoundly good for you. Um, and so to be deprived of it is to be deprived of something utterly essential um, to well-being. Um, now, for reasons that I think will probably come out a little bit later in the conversation, I'm skeptical of that view. Even though I think there is something important about genetic knowledge, I don't put so much weight on it. And so um, to the extent that I think people shouldn't keep the secret, it's not because I think that the information is so profoundly important that to keep it from someone is to deprive them of something that's sort of basic for well-being. So that's one reason you might think you shouldn't keep the, that's one reason you might think you shouldn't keep the secret, but it's not a reason I, I endorse. Um, but here are two others that I think are actually spot on. So one is, well, look, people need to know for medical reasons. Um, right, right. It could be really crucial for your personal health. If you don't know that your donor conceived, um, your social parents, one of them might well have some condition that tends to be genetically passed down. Uh, you might worry that um, you're going to get it. Uh, and this could be a source of anxiety and, of course, can muddy your medical history. Um, so it can be important to know that actually I'm not genetically related to that person. And then, of course, the other side of that is um, if maybe neither of your social parents 
um, have illnesses or diseases that um, uh, are genetically passed down, but your genetic parent does. And if you don't know that your donor conceived, then you may have no idea that that's something that you need to pay attention to, uh, something that, that could pop up. So there are obviously medical reasons that it can be really important to know. Um, uh, one thing I'll just add here is that you might think like, oh, that's all we need to hear for why people should know who their genetic parents are. The medical reasons view, as I call it, is enough. Um, and I think to some extent that's true, but the reason that I don't just stop there um, is that for many people who are donor conceived, um, though medical reasons are important, it doesn't tell the whole story. Um, it seems to miss something important about why people want genetic knowledge when they do want it. Um, and so the way that I put it in the book is that just stopping with the idea that it's important to know this stuff for medical reasons um, uh, short circuits the, the conversation and sort of, I think, makes us avoid and not get to the stuff that's really, really interesting. So I just want to throw that out there about why this isn't just an utterly simple uh, answer right away. Um, having said that, there are medical reasons to know that you're a donor conceived, and I think those are weighty reasons. So that's one reason. Um, another kind of reason uh, is that keeping secrets can have harmful effects. Uh, and this is true in a number of ways. One is that these secrets are really hard to, to keep. Um, and again, uh, I feel like our media is full of stories of people who found out that they were donor conceived late in life. Either they took a genetic test or you hear stories of like deathbed confessions or a family member who's maybe not an immediate family member who knew lets it slip. And then someone is, you know, in their teens and their 20s and their 30s and their 40s and their 50s. And they've basically had the rug pulled out from under them. Their understanding of their family structure uh, is just completely upended. And this can engender like serious psychological distress, serious distrust within a family. And it's, it's, it's obviously best if one can avoid that. Um, and so given that it's very, very hard to keep this kind of secret over the course of a lifetime, there's good reason to um, avoid those severe downstream negative effects by just being upfront to begin with. Um, even in cases where the secret in some sense never comes out, it's also quite common to hear people say there was something you know, even even before I officially knew there was something in the air, there was a it was conversations would stop when I entered the room or the kinds of things that were, were said to me by my parents or other people who it turns out knew were just odd. And I always felt like things there's just something not being said. So even if the secret is never explicitly comes out, it can still, uh, um, as it were, uh, influence. And I'm inclined to use the word like sort of infect the atmosphere in a way that's negative. So that's another reason why you might not want to keep the secret. As I say, I, I, I think the medical reasons and the harmful effects of secret keeping both are really good reasons for not keeping the secret. But I also feel like they don't tell the whole story. Um, and you can see why they don't tell the whole story if you ask the following question, which is the kind of question that philosophers ask. Um, what if the secret could be perfectly kept? What if there were no negative downstream or knock-on effects. So it didn't affect the atmosphere. You knew in advance it would not come out late in life. It could just be perfectly, perfectly kept. Um, now, maybe some people are like, great, I, I don't see any problem there. If someone could perfectly keep the secret, then go on and keep the secret. My claim, my, my intuition is that there's still something problematic there. Um, and so that suggests that whatever the problem is with keeping the secret, it's not exhausted by the medical reasons, and it's not exhausted by the possible downstream harmful effects. 
Um, and so here's what I want to say. Um, I think that it uh, creates a kind of what I call distance between parents and children. And this isn't a felt distance because that would be just the psychological effect again, uh, but rather um, it creates a kind of uh, lack of, of intimacy um, that uh, uh, where, where there should be a kind of intimacy between parent and child. So let me try to say a little bit more about why you might think that. Um, so the first thing to note is, is that I think keeping the secret just is deceptive. I don't think it's just a case of not, you know, sometimes I don't, you know, there's lots of things I don't share with people. There's lots of things I'm not telling you, uh, um, uh, uh, Robert, uh, uh, but I'm not keeping secrets from you. Uh, um, there's just more to be said than could be said. And there are things that are properly private, but we don't call it keeping a secret. Uh, um, uh, but I do think in this case, parents uh, are keeping a secret and that doing so is deceptive. Um, and the reason why is because the default assumption for a child that is being raised by a mother and a father is that is that they, the child, is the genetic child of the parent. And when I say it's the default assumption, I don't mean it's the default assumption maybe of the people or, you know around the child. I mean, it's the default assumption of the child that right. if they're not told otherwise, they will just assume. Uh, and again, we're imagining the secret is being perfectly kept. So there are no there are no hints or suggestions anywhere. They will just assume that their mother and father um, are their genetic mother and father. And so not disclosing in that context is uh, taking advantage of that assumption. Uh, and I think that as a result, it's deceptive. Um, the parents might might never lie, but they're taking advantage of cultural beliefs and norms to uh, induce a false belief in their child, namely that they, the parents, are the genetic parents. Now, you might think all deception is wrong. Uh, and so you might think, okay, I've said enough to show why keeping the secret is wrong. But like me, uh, you might be like me and think, well, maybe not all deception is wrong. And look, parents deceive their children all the time, uh, uh, you know, the, I, I've got a bunch of examples in my book. We say, you know, oh, honey, that's a beautiful piece of art. That's amazing. <laughs> or, or um, no, we're not going to watch TV after you go to bed. Just go to bed or whatever the case may be. Um, and so you might think, okay, look, it's deceptive, but what's the problem? Why isn't it a piece of the sort of everyday deceptions that parents foist on their children? Um, and, and, and so my claim is, is that, well, this secret uh, is different than those more mundane secrets because it has what I call a kind of presumed long-term significance. Um, one doesn't tell it just to sort of smooth over uh, uh, um, what might be a difficult moment uh, in interaction with your child, like, oh, they're going to freak out if they know we're watching a movie after they go to bed. I'm going to say we're not watching a movie. We're just going to move past it. Rather, the thought is, is that from the parent's point of view, who want to keep the secret, um, they take the information to have tremendous amount of significance. Uh, they think either it does to them or they think it will to the child. Um, um, uh, so that's one point. It's a, it's, it, it's a, a secret with presumed long-term significance. And then the other thing is that it's a secret about the basis of the relationship itself. Um, it's about the nature of the relationship between the parent um, and, and the child. Um, and so, uh, my thought is, is that having secrets of that nature, where there's presumed long-term significance, um, and uh, uh, it's about the nature of the relationship itself, um, is at odds with the kind of intimacy, the kinds of closeness that should exist um, in close relationships in general, including parent-child relationships. Um, it, 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 it displays sort of a lack of trust and, and a unwillingness to share things 
that are important to at least one of the parties. Um, and so in that sense, it creates um, distance. And I think that is a reason not to keep the secret. Keeping the secret is at odds with um, the norms or the principles that, that govern uh, uh, the parent-child uh, relationship. So let's go to the core claim then, which runs something like this. Um, a donor-conceived person is so likely to develop a significant, and you say also worthwhile, interest in acquiring genetic knowledge, the knowledge of the identity of uh, their genetic progenitor or progenitors, that parents should avoid using an anonymous donor um, and instead should generally use an open donor. Um, now, you call this the significant interest view. Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us how it works. Yeah, good. So in order to uh, explain it, it might be helpful to contrast it with another view I already mentioned, which is the profound prudential good view. Uh, so this is the view according to which um, having genetic knowledge, knowing who your genetic parents are, is uh, utterly or borderline utterly indispensable for healthy identity determination, that to be deprived of it is to be deprived of something essential for, um, for, for sort of true flourishing. Um, uh, if that were true, right, then we've got a very, very easy argument for why parents should um, at least use an open donor. Maybe they should use a, a known donor. And now, again, for reasons that we'll, we'll get to, I'm inclined not to endorse that view. Among other things, I don't think it's true to the, to the social science, uh, but I also have sort of philosophical reasons. So my view is different than that. And it says, as you, as you noted, that um, as a general rule of thumb, given what we know, People who are donor conceived, and in fact, not just people that are donor conceived, um, have this interest in knowing who their genetic parents are. And it's a significant interest. It's not just a passing thing that, that uh, comes and then it goes and they don't think about it again. It's not like a trivial interest. Uh, I, you know, I have all kinds of interests in doing things, but they don't matter to me that much. Um, the thought is, is that this is something that um, sort of takes up place in someone's psychic economy and their life of their mind and their psychology. Uh, uh, and, um, uh, and it is, can be often quite persistent. Uh, um, and so in that sense, um, it's a, a significant interest. And by interest here, I mean what I call a subjective interest, which is like, it's, it's like a, it's a felt interest. It's something that they take themselves to have an interest in. Uh, um, uh, so, so that's one claim is that it's a significant interest. And then you mentioned the other thing that it's a worthwhile interest. Um, it, it's something that is that uh, is um, reflecting or latching on to something that is actually worth going for. Um, uh, and so the central claim is it, it actually has nothing to do with donor conception. It's sort of much broader than that. It's that um, if you know in advance or you know it's likely in advance, you can foresee that it's very probable that your child is going to have this significant interest in something, uh, and that interest is worthwhile. It's, it's, it's tracking something that is worth having in some sense. Then, um, as a parent, you should, uh, you've got a very strong reason to do what it takes to put your child in the position to meet that interest. Um, and so this is true, again, of not just an interest in knowing your genetic parents are. You can run it with any interest. If you knew, I mean, I use this example from uh, an episode of This American Life. Um, there are people that are really, really, really interested in building 
um, really, really loud car stereos um, and they go to competitions. Um, if you knew in advance that your child would have an interest in this um, and you could put them in a position to satisfy that interest, to meet that interest, that I, I think you've got uh, a, a good, strong reason as a parent, as a prospective parent now, to uh, put your child in the position to meet that interest. Um, now, of course, you can't really, I mean, you can't, you can't predict in advance. It's in fact, it's very unlikely that your child is going to grow up to be interested in building insanely loud car stereos. But um, if you are conceiving a child with donated gametes, uh, it is foreseeable. Uh, um, and again, I, um, the social science, which is imperfect in various ways, bear this out. You can foresee um, that they are going to be interested um, uh, uh, in having genetic knowledge. And so, um, uh, the claim is, is that that interest is worthwhile. Um, one thing I left out is that satisfying your worthwhile interests contributes to how well your life goes so that a central part of your life going well for you is that, um, you are able to satisfy your significant worthwhile interests. Um, and so if you're a parent and one of your key goals as a parent is to do well by your child, uh, um, to help them flourish, um, and you see that they're going to, that they're likely to have this significant worthwhile interest and you can put them in a position to satisfy that interest, then you should. Um, and so uh, that leads to the conclusion, or at least that you have very strong reason to. So that leads to the conclusion that you've got a very strong reason uh, to use an open donor, because doing so will put your child in the position to satisfy the interest that they're very likely to have um, in knowing who their genetic parent is. So that's the argument uh, in a nutshell. Good. Could you say a little bit more about the worthwhileness of the interest? I mean, I, I, uh, as I was reading in the book, I got the sense that, um, well, it might be clear that the interest in genetic knowledge was non-trivial. Yeah. Um, non-triviality might, ar I guess, arguably is different from worthwhileness. <laughs> yeah. Um, could you say something, uh, or do you just mean by worthwhile that it's just not a fleeting, trivial, uh, you know, uh, flash in the pan kind of um, uh, subjective uh, um, uh, attachment to something that it's 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 more permanent and um, maybe it's more deeply connected to other kinds of interests that one might have that are significant. Um, what's the worthwhileness about? Yeah. So, so the reason this is, let me just say something about why, why it's an important, why it's in there, the worthwhile interest, right? right? You, 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 children might be interested in all kinds of things. And some of the things they might be interested in might be very bad indeed. They might be really interested in them, but they might, they might be very, very uh, bad. They might be harmful to themselves. They might be harmful to other, those, the interests might be interests that would, if satisfied would harm the child. Uh, they might be interested if satisfied would harm other people. Um, and I mean, I think there's, there's two things to say here. One is, is that it's not at all clear that um, if someone satisfies uh, an interest that isn't worthwhile, what we might, what we might now just call a bad interest or, or, um, uh, yeah, we'll just call it a bad interest, that that actually contributes to their well-being, right? So there's uh, this connect with long-standing issues in moral philosophy about whether um, uh, um, it can be good for you to be 
vicious or immoral. Um, so uh, I, I sort of bypass that altogether by building in the claim that it's a worthwhile interest. So I, I don't take a stand on whether satisfying your non-worthwhile interests is good for you or not. So say, so look, it's a worthwhile interest. Okay, now that this leads to the second question, what exactly does that mean? Um, I, I think you're right. It doesn't just mean non-trivial because uh, I think people can have interests that are non-trivial in the sense that they really, really matter, um, uh, but they're, they're bad interests. Um, what makes them non-trivial is that they can be extremely harmful if satisfied to the person that has them or to other people. So we better pay attention to them. Um, so what I mean by worthwhile is, is everything that you, that, that you said, um, it's not fleeting. Um, it, it plays, uh, um, I'm going to use the word significant, uh, a significant role in the person's, um, self-understanding, uh, in what they sort of think about as I put it in their mental economy. But then it's also this, it is tracking something. It's responding to something or the interest it wa- is going after something that genuinely has value. There's truly something to get out of it, uh, 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 to be to be gotten that can contribute to the goodness um, of a life. So in that sense, um, it's worthwhile. Now, when I put it like that, you might think, oh, this is starting to sound like the profound prudential good view again. And so you might think like, why, Grohl, um, are you putting so much weight on this idea that donor conceived people as a, a matter of sociological fact tend to have this interest. Um, uh, uh, given, again, this is someone speaking to me, given Grohl that you insist that the interest needs to be worthwhile, why not just focus on what makes it worthwhile and claim um, its value, the value of the thing itself, in this case, genetic knowledge, is what explains why parents should um, choose an open donor because it gives their child access to something of value. We don't need to say anything about um, the child being interested in it. It's like one might think that like, if we ask what's important about giving people water, um, someone said, oh, well, the reason it's important to give people water is that people have this really strong felt need to have water when they're thirsty. And you might think, well, that's true. But the reason that they have this strong felt need is because water is utterly fundamental to survival. So just say that. So you might worry that that um, the that the by building in this condition of worthwhileness, really, the view is just going to collapse uh, into something like the profound prudential good view where you, where the story should really just go through the value of genetic knowledge. So that's, that's one worry you might have. And then on the other side, you might think like, well, I don't even buy that it's worthwhile. Um, maybe it is, uh, um, maybe it's not really tracking anything of value, but in fact reflects um, a kind of prejudice, um, what I call a bionormative prejudice, that genetic relationships have a kind of significance they don't in fact have and that it's bound up with all kinds of problematic notions about kinship and blood and heritage and the like um, and that we would just be better off not caring about it at all. Um, So the the view you might think is unstable, like either it collapses into the profound prudential good view uh, or um, uh, it's one of its linchpin claims that um, the interest is worthwhile is not going to be defensible. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
good. So let's take those up because you know you 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 address both of these kinds of objections in the book. One you called the sideshow the sideshow objection, right? You say um, this looks unstable, and that you know we could just get rid of the uh, the worthwhile interest part because it's just. Um, something really important, and we don't have to care about interest. And the other is the um, uh, what you do call the the, the bionormativity objection. Let's take those up in uh, uh, in turn. So, um, uh, state the sideshow obje- sideshow objection again, and, and let us know why uh, you know, how you defend against it. Right. Okay. Good. So, if, if someone says, like, look, the significant interest view um, is just a sideshow. It's true you've latched on to something, namely that. Uh, uh, um, donor-conceived people tend to have this strong interest in knowing who their genetic parents are, but that interest is reflecting the fact that knowing who your genetic parents are is really, really important, Uh, just uh, in the same way that people's subjective pull toward having water when they're thirsty is reflective of the uh, independent importance, we might put it, uh, um, of water for life. Um, uh, and so don't, don't put a lot of weight on the fact that people happen to be interested in it. Just appeal directly to the value of genetic knowledge uh, as a, 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 in arguing for why people should use an open donor. So that, that's the sideshow objection. So my response in some, I mean, there's more than one part to it is fairly simple. So, so one, one part of it begins with an observation that even though it's true that, um, that so far as we can tell from the social science that donor conceived people uh, when they know they're donor conceived, um, have this interest in knowing, knowing who their genetic uh, parents are. Uh, um, it's not true of everyone. Um, and uh, when you think about, I mean, I already used the example of water. When you think about profound potential goods, uh, it, it's, you can safely assume that just about everyone is interested in having it. Uh, um, and you can sort of see straight off why not having it uh, um, fails or uh, um, uh, uh, um, makes a life, makes it hard to flourish. Um, and that just doesn't seem true with respect to genetic knowledge. So there are people, uh, um, and you can read about it in the literature, but I mean, I, I know some people for whom it is just not important. And hey, they're doing great. Uh, it just doesn't take up time in their mental economy. It is not something that they, they do not conceive of themselves uh, 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 mostly in these terms as donor conceived or as a donor conceived person who needs this information. Um, and as they say, their lives are going beautifully. And so th- that by itself makes me think like we, we don't want an account that just says, here's this thing, it's unbelievably important uh, uh, and, and, and everyone needs it. Um, so I distinguish between a view, which I think the profound prudential good view is, which is a, a chauvinistic view about the value of genetic knowledge, which basically says it is utterly important and everyone needs it, whether they know it or not. And a pluralistic view, which says, um, uh, there is something genuinely valuable there, and it can be uh, used uh, in, to enrich a life, and it is used by many people to enrich a life, but it is, as I put it, prudential, prudentially optional. You don't, you don't need it. You can turn your attention elsewhere to other sources for understanding yourself, and, and uh, it's not that those other things are making up for a lack. It's just that you are telling a different kind of story, and that story um, can uh, uh, be just as rich as the story that you might tell about yourself by using um, genetic knowledge. Um, one way that I've thought about it recently is like, you know, you listen to um, one of the, you listen to a great jazz solo, say, 
Uh, and it, it would be a weird criticism of that solo to say like, oh yeah, everything they played was great. That was a really good solo. But it would have been even better if they had played more different stuff. Uh, uh, there should have been some like techno in there too. It's like we should have had it all. You know, the best the best solo is the one that contains it all. And you think, well, no, that doesn't make sense. Uh, what we're doing is sort of crafting a solo. It's a kind of narrative. It has a kind of an, uh, a structure, uh, and you need to pick and choose what's in there. Um, and if you try to put it all in there, it's not going to make sense. I think roughly the same thing about about the place that genetic knowledge can have in a life. You can construct an understanding of yourself where, uh, that um, revolves around having genetic knowledge quite centrally. And that can be a, a, a wonderful, accurate, beautiful story. That can be your solo. Um, but you might do something else. And that solo is no worse off for lacking um, uh, for lacking anything about your genetic relatedness to other people, just as a Miles Davis solo isn't worse off for um, lacking like, a, you know, a techno break. Um, so, uh, um, so, so how do I make the case that it's optional? Well, I connect it to uh, a theme that's very common in discussions about donor conception, which is about the, um, how having genetic knowledge, how knowing who your genetic parents are um, connects to identity determination to um, understanding who you are. So this is a question that comes up a lot when you read first-person accounts of being donor-conceived. Who am I? Uh, and on the one hand, it's like we totally understand that question. It's not like we're flummoxed by it. Um, but on the other hand, it's like what exactly is someone asking who am I? In what sense don't you know who you are? And so one of the tasks that I take on is to try to understand what this question is asking and I, I break it down into three sub-questions. Uh, uh, one is, uh, um, um, how did I come to be? Like sort of what's the story of, you know, the universe is maybe too grand to scale. What is the story uh, of, of the earth such that I came to be? How did events conspire to bring me into existence? So that's the, excuse, excuse me, that's the how am I question. Um, the second is, um, what am I like? What are, what are my features like? Am I, am I uh, funny? Am I patient? Am I a dancer? Um, what, are, what are my features? Um, and then the last is, who am I like? Um, or more precisely, um, not just who am I like, but who, who am I like and who made me like I am? Um, right. And rather than going through like sort of how you might understand these questions, the, the key point that I try to make is that in each case, um, I think there are ways of answering these questions. Um, well, one of two things is true. Either there are ways of answering these questions that don't demand genetic knowledge, that you can tell a perfectly accurate, rich, um, identity-informing story um, that doesn't depend on genetic knowledge. Um, or um, in, in maybe those cases where it looks like you do need um, uh, to know something genetic, the question itself is, is optional. So like in the case of the last question, uh, who made me like I, I am, uh, at least with respect to some features that uh, um, are largely genetically determined? I think that's a question people can be genuinely interested in. So I do think there's something like really valuable there, uh, really, like, like it can be really significant to people and like a, a rich source of understanding. But I also don't think it's, it's rationally mandated. Uh, I think people can be genuinely indifferent to having an answer to that question. And like, and that's just fine. Um, so this is where the pluralism comes in. And one of the things that I really try to emphasize is that I think it's a mistake 
to think of um, identity determination, answering this question, who I am, as, as I put it, a purely epistemic project, as though the answer is out there and we are in the role of, of discoverers trying to get at um, this independent uh, um, truth. Um, now, of course, to some extent, the answer is out there. You can't just make up anything about yourself. But the claim is, is that we have a we have a, a lot. We, we should think of ourselves as having a lot of agency with respect to what we pay attention to, um, and so we can construct our self understanding given the myriad materials that are available to us for self understanding in different ways. Um, and one valuable way of doing it is going through your genetic lineage. Again, I do think like it, it is. Some people really feel the force of like. This is, this is sort of amazing that I get these features in this way from this person. Um, here's how I came to be in like the genetic lottery. Uh, um, but I think other people just don't want to tell those stories. And I don't think that's a form of self-denial. I don't think it's bad faith. I think they're just genuinely not interested. So if that's true, then it turns out that it matters that people in fact are really interested in having genetic knowledge for for the argument that people should use an open donor, um, because it's not—it's not the genetic—it's not the genetic knowledge itself is so important and utterly necessary that whether people care about it or not, they should care about it. Um, rather, the claim is it's sort of uh, uh, one valuable way of understanding oneself, and it's a way that many people are interested in pursuing. Um, and given the conjunction of those two things then parents should put their kids in the position to pursue that, that mode of identity determination, um, uh, given that it's foreseeable that many people will want to do so. Great. So um, the case for, um, so the significant interest view then isn't just a sideshow because we've got, um, it's, you know, the, the interest is optional, even though it's very likely to develop and it's worthwhile when it does develop. Uh, and there's something agential about genetic knowledge um, now, what about the bionormativity objection, which um, uh, wants to suggest in a way that I guess um, uh, that the significant interest in genetic knowledge sort of is um, the product of um, uh, conceptions about families and people and origins and identities that ultimately are disreputable and, and maybe even uh, uh, morally suspect. Um, how does the significant interest view deal with them? Yeah, right. I mean, you articulated the objection really, really well, right? So it's part of the significant interest view that um, the significant interest people have in genetic knowledge is generally speaking worthwhile. And then so you have this critique that, well, well maybe that's not so clear. Now, I think to some people that, that it'd be like utterly mysterious to think like, how could it not be worthwhile? But let me, let me try to make the case, right? So I mentioned before that people can have um, uh, what, what I just called bad interests. And so it's really easy to think of cases of just what I call baldly immoral interests. Maybe someone has an interest in uh, torturing animals for fun. Uh, baldly immoral interest. Its immorality is just like right there on its face. Okay, so if, we want to th if someone wants to make the claim that the uh, interest in genetic knowledge is not worthwhile, it doesn't seem at all plausible that it's baldly immoral. Uh, uh, um, uh, that, that's just way too strong a claim. But consider um, an interest, what we might think of as um, certain kinds of gendered interests, like, uh, let's say, um, a, um, a woman's interest or a teenage girl's interest in being real, uh, being thin or conforming to societal beauty standards. Um, seems weird to call this 
baldly immoral. Um, I mean, among other things, it's not about harming anyone else. Um, Moreover, the interest is utterly understandable. Given the cultural milieu that we live in, uh, we can understand why someone would come to have this interest. Moreover, we might think given a certain cultural, cultural milieu, it makes sense to have the interest. But at the very same time, we will recognize, I hope, that it's a shame that that is so. Um, that the cultural milieu should should be such as not to induce that interest and not to make that kind of interest um, intelligible or something that in any way it would make sense to pursue. Um, uh, and so I call it these insidiously immoral interests. Um, and the, the thought is, is that an interest in genetic knowledge might be something like this, that we inhabit a culture that really, really valorizes a conception of the family um, as genetically related with a mother and a father uh, at the head of the household, genetically related to their children. Our, our primary notion of resemblance operates through um, uh, a, a genetic resemblance. Moreover, it's often um, really re- re- uh, reductionist and oversimplified and say, oh, you got that from your dad and you got that from your mom in ways that we know just really aren't true about how genetics works. Um, and um, uh, and we live in a society where the presumption is uh, that if you don't um, don't have a mom and a dad uh, or you do, but you're not genetically related to them, then you're missing something. So um, as I try to make clear in the book, if you navigate the world as, let's say, an adoptee or as a donor-conceived child, you'll be confronted left, right, and center with cultural messages, uh, uh, sometimes direct questions from people that immediately make you aware that from, like a, from a common cultural standpoint, you're missing something. Um, you might never have thought before that it's unusual to have un- unusual in the sense of, of non-standard to have two moms or two dads or um, to not be genetically related to one of your parents until someone asks, well, but who's your who's your real mother um, or where's your dad or something like that? And then all of a sudden you're like, huh. Um, and so if you think we live in a culture that is just in all kinds of ways, subtle and unsubtle, telling you that you're missing something important. Well, then is it a surprise that you come to develop this interest? Um, and if you think that the importance that's attributed to genetic relatedness um, uh, totally overplays or outstrips its genuine significance, then it starts to look like the interest in genetic knowledge is kind of like these, these gendered interests. Um, that uh, what would be best is if we lived in a society that did not put so much weight on, on the significance of genetic relatedness um, and so the felt need to know, to have genetic knowledge wouldn't arise in the first place. Um, and so you might think in that sense, the interest is not worthwhile. It reflects a kind of prejudice about the importance of genetic relatedness. Um, okay, so how do I answer this? Uh, <laughs> the more I've thought about it, the more I'm like, I really feel the force of this. Just to really simply um, it, it, it depends on the claim that there are some interests, and I think a lot of gendered interests are like this, where um, if we, uh, um, the interest in question, the insidiously problematic interest, um, really has, uh, in, a non, in non-oppressive circumstances, um, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't arise at all. Uh, there would be no reason to have the interest. 
And my claim is, and this is depending in part on the story I told uh, um, uh, previously, is that even in non-oppressive circumstances, even in a context where there is no bionormative prejudice, nonetheless, the interest in genetic knowledge is intelligible, um, that there is something worth going for. And so um, the right answer, I think, is not that, look, people's interest in it is a reflection of prejudice all the way down. Um, it's to claim it might be true we live in a society that conditions people to have an interest in it and maybe condition them to have an interest in it that's not warranted. But there is something genuinely there that is worth being interested in. Um, and so this, the, the, the right thing to do is to put people in a position to satisfy that interest while I think at the very same time re recognize and work against uh, bionormative prejudice. Got it. Got it. Um... So, um, we, why should we think, and this is the, the sort of, um, what we might think of as sort of the, the last move in the, in the central argument of your book. Um, so why should we think that the significant and worthwhile interest that a donor conceived person, um, is likely to develop in acquiring genetic knowledge provides intended parents a decisive reason <laughs> uh, uh, to use an open donor rather than just, you know, a good reason or a weighty reason. Uh, uh, you seem to, to think that um, uh, generally uh, there's more than just um, merely good or weighty reason. Um, there's a decisive reason. And there are points in the book where it looks as if you want to say that in context where legally um, one has the option uh, uh, between um, uh, anonymous, known, and open donors, that there would be something, um, uh, something morally, uh, uh, you know, something morally wrong, something morally amiss uh, with not choosing the open donor. Um, so spell out that, that last, that, 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 that sort of the last move uh, uh, in the argument. Yeah, good. Right. So the argument to this point is basically, um, if you imagine a scale that, that is, you know, the question is, um, should I use an open donor uh, that I've given an argument that puts a big weight on the on the yes side. Um, mm. But you might think that doesn't show you should use an open donor until you know what's on the other side of the scale. Uh, um, <laughs> right. Uh, and so uh, uh, and so we need to show that um, there's either nothing on the other side of the scale or there's nothing there that is weighty enough or significant enough to outweigh the consideration on the yes side of the scale. Um, and so. Suppose you are an intended parent uh, and, and you're thinking like, OK, you've read you've heard what I've had to say. And you're like, OK, I get that there's a weighty reason to use an open donor. What might what might one they say to themselves or what might we say to them uh, that suggests that they've got reason not to? And I, I, I here's one consideration. You might think they might think or we might think, well, maybe it's true that it's good for the child to satisfy their uh, um, their worthwhile, significant interests. Um, to the extent that they do, that's like a check mark in the plus column of their well-being. But um, if you consider what else happens when people meet this interest, actually, overall, it makes things bad for the child. Um, so maybe they, they meet this interest, but then things really, really go south in other ways. Um, and this is a, now this is an empirical claim. What happens when people satisfy this interest. Okay, they've satisfied the interest, little check mark, but then do things go really, really south? Do things, do they reach out to the donors and, and it leads to disaster in various ways? This is an empirical question. Um, to the extent that there's evidence 
uh, um, to answer this question, the answer is no. Things tend to go pretty darn well. And remember, we're talking about um, when people, uh, uh, I mean, this this is, well, we're now imagining someone reaching out to a donor who wanted to be known or was willing to be known. So we're not talking about calling someone up who donated 40 years ago and was like, I thought it was going to be a secret forever. Please don't contact me again. Um, so the, the evidence is like, actually, it, it, not only is it good in and of itself to have your worthwhile significant interests satisfied, but the consequences in one's life in this uh, of having this particular interest satisfied are, are, are good. So it's not reasonable for the parent to think, well, uh, overall, I'm, uh, it's not good for my child to do this. Um, so I'm not going to do it. It's like, no, overall for the child, it looks like it is pretty good. Okay, so... That's one 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 possible move that off the table. But you could think the parents like I don't want to for my sake. Um, you know, parenting isn't just about doing everything for your child. It's, you know, parents also have their own interests. Um, they think I don't want um, this person uh, in my life either. If it's a known donor right away, or if it's an open uh, 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 open donor in eighteen years, um, it just doesn't interest me. Um, and the basic thought here is, is that there's different ways of understanding that. I mean, one would be that the parent themselves thinks that having genetic knowledge is totally worthless. And if that's what they think, well, then I've already shown like that's not true. So if they say, well, I don't want to do this because it's giving my child something worthless. The answer is, if you buy the arguments of the book, it's just not true. Um, but they could say like, well, I grant that it's a way this could be important to my child. But look, girl, you said it's not important to everyone. And it's not important to me. This is not the story I want to tell about me, about my relationship to my child, uh, uh, about the significance of the donor in my child's life. Um, and so you yourself, girl, have said people have choices. So look, um, my child has a significant interest probably in knowing who their donor is. But I have a significant interest in them not knowing who their donor is. Um, and I think, okay, that's right. But here I do think it's true that when parents and children have interests that um, are of um, equal significance, if you didn't know who they belonged to those interests, um, when you find out that one belongs to the child and one belongs to the parent, part of being a parent is, is uh, discounting your interest. <laughs> right. Um, so you might, you might think like, well, it's between me and my child. Both interests are significant. Part of being a parent especially as the person who's bringing this person um, into the world, you know, without their consent, uh, uh, is, okay, their interest basically wins. And so that, that, that's what closes the argument and says, the reason that I identified is not just weighty, it's decisive. Perfect. Um, so we, you've been very generous with, generous with your time, and we, we've, we've got only you know about five minutes or so left. But the book doesn't end with that, with the closure, with the closing of that that central argument. Um, uh, so could you just give us a just a, a, a taster of the the final two issues that the book addresses? Has to do uh, one with the responsibilities of donors. Um, you know, one might think that. Um, uh, one uh, implication of the argument is that there might be a responsibility that if you are going to be a donor, you should be an open donor. Um, uh, and um, secondly, there's um, a chapter about implications for policy. Um, there are some places in the world where um, anonymous donation is uh, mandated uh, and other places where it's prohibited, I think. Um, so could you... Um, could you just give us a, a, a quick thumbnails of those two last uh, uh, issues? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you nicely articulated my view on on um, donors. I do think that there is a um, moral responsibility to be an open donor. 
Um, and the argument is quite simple, given that... You mean if you're going to be a donor. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, if you're going to be a donor. Yes, thank you. Qualification. Yes. If you are going to be a donor, you ought to be at least an open donor. Uh, um uh, and the argument's really quite simple, which is that, I mean, if the arguments to this point are successful, people should use open donors. That's the right thing to do. Uh, I, I think in, in general, um, using an anonymous donor is, is morally wrong. Um, but then if you are going to partake in this practice now as a potential donor, um, you would do wrong to partake in the morally wrong version of the practice uh, by being an anonymous donor. Um, uh, so if you're going to donate, you should be uh, a, an open donor. There's a, a lot more to, to say about that and various complications, but I, you know, I encourage people to go to go see. The, the other side of this is that I do think donors have responsibilities, but I don't think that they are parental responsibilities. Um, so I think we can tell common sense stories about how people gain parental responsibility, how they come to be the people that are responsible for caring for a child, on the hook for caring for a child, that uh, do not imply that donors are parentally responsible, um, uh, though they do have some responsibilities. So that's another part uh, um, of the book. And then on this issue of policy, you know, given that I think that uh, people make a moral mistake in general, right, uh, um, by uh, using anonymous donors, you might think like the policy implications are really straightforward. Um, it should be, uh, 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 open donation should be morally mandated as it is in a number of countries. I, I actually think that that's too fast. Uh, and to say very, very quickly, part of the reason is that though I think it's a moral um, mistake to use an anonymous donor, um, I think it's the kind of mistake that we generally give parents a latitude to make. So we don't insist that parents are perfect parents. Parents have the right to make poor decisions with respect to their child. Um, and I think when we look at the kinds of decisions that we allow parents to make with respect to their children and allow them to get it wrong, the decision to use an anonymous uh, donor actually is one of, it, it, it is like those kinds of choices. Um, and so I think it would be sort of picking out this mistake for a kind of special treatment to say, this is the one that should be morally outlawed. Um, now it does have some differences with some of those other um, moral mistakes that we allow parents to make, which is that in this case, uh, there's actually a pretty easy intervention to make. Uh, um, uh, it's not hard to design a system whereby people have to use an open donor, though there are ways around it. But then the other side of that is, is that if we go that way, I think it is really important to bear in mind the uh, bionormativity objection. Um, that we would make a mistake if we're just like, here's the solution, just mandate open donation without at the same time really, really working uh, to think of personal attitudes, but also societal structures that um, reinforce uh, bionormativity. So my considered view is like, if one wants to make it uh, morally mandated uh, to use an open donor, uh, sorry, legally mandated data to use an open donor. Um, at the very same time, we should be working to um, reduce bionormative prejudice, both in our everyday attitudes, but also structurally in institutions and in, in medical forms and school assignments and all this kind of stuff that keeps reinforcing this idea that the gold standard, as Charlotte Witt puts it, of the family is a mother and father genetically related to their child. Fantastic. Um, uh Thank you so much uh, for your time. It's been really, you know, wonderful talking to you. And I really enjoyed the book, Daniel. 
Thanks. I really appreciate it. This has been a, a really fabulous conversation. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Um, and thank you, listeners, uh, for joining uh, us for a discussion uh, of Daniel Grohl's new book, which is titled Conceiving People, Genetic Knowledge and the Ethics of Sperm and Egg Donation. Um, it's newly out with Oxford University Press. I highly recommend it. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy, and bye for now.